Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, as we age, one of the hallmarks of the process is our brains not working as well as they used to and experiencing some elements of cognitive decline that are based upon various aspects of changes that are occurring at the cellular level. A lot of these changes are not reversible and end up uh, manifesting as different elements of neurological change they result in cognitive decline, sometimes as different diseases, different disorders that are seeming to become more prevalent as we age and as the aging population grows. But can you reverse this? And it seems like today's guest says you can. Today we're going to speak with Dr. Johnny Baer. He's a professor in the Department of Neuroscience and the Department of Genetics at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine and the author of Replacing Aging. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Iber. Right, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, I really appreciate it because brains are a frequent topic these days, especially with respect to neurodegenerative disease and some of the underlying causes that we talk about, which really are rather intriguing. But this is the flip side. This is trying to get back what we lost. And let's go back to the basis of this. What is aging, particularly at the cellular level? Yeah. I mean, first, getting back to what we lost in the sense of regaining function, right? So if our cognitive performance declines with age, that's what we want to reverse. Um, you know, if we lost some memories or, or some functionality, uh, depending on how that was lost, you know, we may not get it back unless we relearn it. Um, yeah. But what is aging? Uh, you know, that's, that's a good question. And it can be defined many different ways and many different people define it different ways. You can look at the whole organism, right? You can't run as fast. You're more wrinkled. You're stiffer. That's all aging. Um, and people also define it at a cellular level. So the metabolism of cells, um, the epigenome of cells, which you may have heard of, uh, the mitochondria of cells, the telomeres of cells, uh, you know, many aspects of cells uh, show uh, features that, are, uh, that accumulate over time that we would call aging. But I think the more important level that we need to look at aging at is the molecular level, the macromolecular level. That's, I believe, where aging occurs and is largely uh, ignored by um, the field of, of life extension, aging, longevity. Well, what exactly is happening at that level that you think is a really a priority that others might be missing? Yeah. So, I mean, there are uh, stochastic forms of damage that accumulate non-enzymatic. Um, there's no repair machinery encoded on our genes to fix them. So no matter how much we play with our genes and our epigenome, we're not addressing that damage. And this is damage to proteins, carbohydrates, 
uh, DNA, of course, that's been well documented. Uh, but for the proteins and carbohydrates, a lot of that is outside the cells. So in the extracellular environment, um, and that's what I'm referring to as largely being ignored by the, the field of, of longevity and aging. Okay, so these are things that are present in an extracellular context that either are being, um, I guess you maybe post-translationally modified in a way that changes their function. Well, post-translation really invokes a certain form of normal regulation, right? Post-translational modification of proteins is something that's encoded by enzymes more often than not. What I'm talking about is stochastic damage. So there's forms of oxidation, glycation, carbamylation, carbonylation, racemization. There's all these forms of damage that accumulates as we age in these proteins. And those haven't been addressed yet by any approach uh, that we hear about, the more popular approaches that we hear about in the longevity field. And if we don't address that damage, we know that we will continue to age at the same rate and reach a ma the same maximal lifespan. I see. So is it, you know, I, I know a little bit about brains. Is it really maybe an accumulation of the damaged stuff that isn't being properly turned over? Like, you know, synuclein alpha and those kinds of things that accumulate in Lewy body dementia, where you have an extra uh, accumulation of proteins that should go away that don't. Yeah, this uh, happens in the brain. It happens all over the body, though. Uh, not necessarily the aggregates that you're referring to. Those, some of those may be brain-specific, and they are part of the problem. You're absolutely right. Uh, but the damage that accumulates... Uh, to the macromolecules of the extracellular environment occur all over the body. Collagen is the most abundant protein in our body. You know, we know very well all these forms of damage that it accumulates over time that make it resistant to degradation by normal enzymes that we have. Um, so it just sits there getting worse and worse, and we get stiffer and stiffer, and you know, get, we get old. And this is very bad for our cells. So even if we put young cells into this old environment, guess what? They behave like old cells. These experiments have been done for several tissues in the body. And the converse is true. You can take old cells, so they have an old epigenome, they have old telomeres, they have old mitochondria, et cetera, et cetera. And you put them in a young environment and they behave like young cells. So I think this extracellular environment, you know, is really underappreciated. And just trying to target, you know, the cellular function is going to fail. We need to target at a tissue level, um, the, the damage that accumulates. Okay. So yeah, this is kind of interesting. So it really is about the context of the cell that is getting some sort of messaging from its extracellular environment. Is it really a question of, um, specific metabolites or signaling molecules or something that is informing the cell that it's old and it matches what it knows from the inside that it's old, like it's internal clocks, like you mentioned uh, epigenome or methylation status or uh, telomere length, these things. Is it that now when that old environment is shaking hands with, an, well, an old cell shaking hands with the old environment, it says, I'm in an old state. Yeah, partly, right. You, you mentioned like the signals that, that cells receive. Cells are, the viability of functions of cells are uh, very dependent on the signals they're getting from 
the extracellular, their extracellular environment, and they will adjust accordingly. And, and so a, uh, you know, an old environment will start telling a cell that, Hey, you know, uh, this is, there's a lot of damage here. You should become inflamed. And so the cells show signs of inflammation. Now, not surprisingly, they're doing what they're supposed to, and they, they will change their uh, epigenome and uh, other aspects of their metabolism and function accordingly. Uh, so, yeah, they, they, they do kind of uh, interact that way. Okay, so we've talked about you know collagen. You mentioned uh, relatively simple molecule compared to or tissue compared to the brain, and that's really where your work is uh, centered. And so why is the brain the most attractive target for revitalization? It's, it's actually uh, the hardest target, as you, you might expect, right? The, the human brain is one of the most complex structures known to us. Um, so yeah, why target the brain? Well, you know, one might argue that the brain is the organ that is most dear to us um, because it, it houses uh, our self-identity. Uh, our, our memories, who we are, um, our highest cognitive functions, and, and not to mention consciousness. Um, so you can, you know, theoretically replace the whole body without without replacing the brain with a new body, and you would still, as far as you can tell, be the same person. Um, so you can't do that with the brain. So the brain is irreplaceable. Um, in terms of it still being you or my brain still being. Um, so that's why I think uh, we're tackling the brain because I, others are um, taking approaches of replacing the other body parts, the old body parts with new body parts that will make potentially our whole body young again, but not our brain. So someone needs to figure out how to reverse all this damage that accumulates over time in the brain. And we think we can do that. Uh, we think we have a, a method of Yeah, so you're starting with the hardest nut to crack, but it, it also seems to me, just with my limited understanding of brains, is that it also seems to have the least plasticity and that when you have a stroke, the damage is slow to, to recover, um, like severed spinal cord or CNS problems, that that doesn't normally repair um, I know people are working on that, but uh, how do you achieve goals of of repairing something that seems to be terminally differentiated and not most likely to want to be able to rejuvenate? Right. So plasticity in the sense of being able to repair itself, the brain is terrible at. Um, plasticity in the sense of um, encoding information, it's amazingly fast. So you mentioned stroke. So there's been studies where stroke to the language center, for example, that is sort of rather traumatically uh, and in a short period of time destroys the language center. Those individuals show very little recovery because there was no time for this mechanism of plasticity to re-encode that information elsewhere. So if you compare that to individuals of the same age, they can be of advanced age as well, that have destruction of the same amount of tissue in the language center, but 
progressively over time due to, for example, a benign glioma that grows from a pinpoint out and eats away at that tissue. Those individuals never lose the ability to speak because every day they're speaking, every day the tumor is growing slowly, the ability uh, for language um, translocates to a different part of the brain. Uh, and this has been well documented. So at that level, there is tremendous plasticity. Um, and functions can move seamlessly without the individual even noticing from one you know, part of the brain, so one neural substrate to another. Um, and, and that's what is one of the reasons, one of the two reasons why we think uh, we can progressively replace brain tissue, hence removing both the cells and their extracellular environment, progressively replace that over time without losing a continuity of self or a continuity of function in the brain. And in so doing, you know, completely reverse the, the, the old brain tissue with young brain tissue. Okay, so that sets the table really beautifully. How, how are you doing this? It seems like, uh, where do you get new brain tissue from to introduce to that old brain? Yeah, so this is the second reason why we think we can do this. Because we didn't do it in the first place, right? The brain that's in your skull, the brain that's in my skull, no scientist or engineer made uh, where did it come from? It came from a rather simple sheet or, or a few sheets of cells um, early in fetal development. That's a fairly simple biological structure. And that sheet gave rise to the mature uh, brain or, or neocortex is what we're focused on. That's you know the, where the highest cognitive functions occur. So a, a simple sheet of cells gave rise to this wonderful tissue that can encode, you know, these, these higher learning uh, and, and thinking processes and consciousness. Um, so we don't have to know how to put together all those mature um, structures. We can use this very immature structure and, uh, and let it do what it normally does. And to date, our lab and many others have been transplanting these fetal light cells, uh, not, not very often tissues, but cells, and they do remarkably well in the adult environment after transplantation. So they project long distances to normal targets, they synaptically integrate, uh, and they uh, show uh, good evidence of uh, functionality. Uh, for example, if you put them in the visual part of the brain, uh, over time, they will respond to visual stimuli. Um, so, so that's the second reason. So you can change the substrate of function progressively over time if you do it over you know, a long enough period of time. And you can put in new tissue that I think if we do it right, can you know, encode function and, uh, and be useful to the individual. Well, this is a really good spot to take a break. So it sets the table beautifully for what comes next. So we're speaking with Dr. Jean Hebert. He's a professor in the departments of neuroscience and the departments of Gen Department of Genetics at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine. And we're talking about replacing worn out brain parts of it and some of the new breakthroughs, which are suggesting that it just may be possible. This is the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabora, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra. 
the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra, and we're talking to Dr. Jean Hebert. Hebert, he's the professor at the Albert Einstein School of Medicine and the author of Replacing Aging. And we're talking about the prospects of how do you restore a brain and an organ, or yeah, I guess an organ that is really thought to be rather steadfast and, and rigid in terms of its development and in terms of its structure, that its structure and function are closely tied. And so how do you mess with that in a way that doesn't destroy what's already there and actually makes a brain do what it's supposed to do while still rejuvenating and providing some new life in that old structure? And before the break, we were talking about how fetal cells have the capacity to deliver plasticity and kind of assimilate with brain tissue in the context in which they're placed. And so are these experiments uh, done in vitro or are these actually in vivo experiments where fetal cells have shown that they can articulate correctly with the context where they're placed? Yeah, these are primarily in vivo experiments. We generate the cells now from uh, these human um, embryonic-like cells and we can differentiate them into precursor brain cells that resemble these fetal brain cells. And then we try to reassemble them in a structure that is uh, just like the fetal tissue that gives rise to our brains normally. Uh, and we've rebuilt that fetal-like tissue inside an adult brain. So we don't make it in a dish and then transplant it. We actually build it inside the, uh, the, the, the brain where there's damage. Okay, so the, are these mostly uh, animal models that you're working with? Yes, yes. We're, we're not ready to go in humans yet. I could use a few if you were. I was, uh, but if you were talking about mouse, um, is, I was assuming mouse or rat model, or is this a... Mostly mouse, yeah. Yeah, so you're, you're having mice that are showing some sort of a deficiency, or is this like an induced damage that you're doing that then you're able to repair with the fetal cells? Yeah, so we work with uh, stroke models, Alzheimer models, but more often than not, just for reproducibility, we make a physical lesion where we, uh, you know, just take out small sections of brain that we try to rebuild. Okay, so you can actually see how a mouse is specifically impaired with, and I know that that medical folks and psychologists do this all the time. You can tweak parts of the mouse's brain, change behavior. And then, uh, and so you're able to do that, create some sort of a physical lesion that then can be repaired by the addition of fetal cells? Yes, although we would not claim to achieve repair yet. And I don't think anybody can uh, justifiably claim repair yet. Uh, primarily because when people are putting their cells in, as we have done thus far, there's missing certain precursor cell types. It's not just, you know, the nerve cells or neurons in the brains. There's all the support cell types that are necessary to function. Those are often missing. 
um, the organization of the cells hasn't been good enough yet to encode uh, normal information processing. And so those are the areas that we need to improve upon. Those are the areas that we're working on um, before we think that we can claim any type of repair. Yeah, so if I, I guess if I'm thinking about this as my put my developmental biologist hat on, you're putting in a highly plastic stem cell type that is not necessarily differentiating into the suite of different cells that would be required in the correct proportions to be able to do functionally what the tissue does in the context of the lesion. Yeah, exactly. So that's what most people have done so far. We've done some of that too, where we're putting in basically one uh, stem-like cell type or, or stem cell, but really we should be putting in uh, multiple stem types, some for the vasculature, some for neurons, some for those support cells uh, that can be grouped into you know, glia category is what they're called. Um, you know, so we need precursors for all these major cell types uh, to be present in the right ratios, as you mentioned, and then also in the right uh, cytoarchitecture. So meaning that they can't just be jumbled in a mess. They're normally there in, in an organized pattern, and we have to uh, recapitulate that organized pattern for information processing to occur normally. And, you know, we think we can do that. It's just a matter of, um, of perfecting the approach. Yeah, it seems, it seems to me, again, with my developmental biologist hat on, that coming up with those kinds of structural connections would be the real challenge because this happened originally when you were, you know, day X of gestation where it was part of the context of a normal time series of gene expression and other events that were occurring that probably have been shut off ever since. And so now you're trying to uh, put a heterologous cell type into the context of a differenti terminally differentiated cell in a complex organ and expecting it to kind of take on the right identity. And I, I can see the challenge here, but am I really overstating the complexity of this in that you have evidence that it is starting to work in this uh, really complicated way. Yeah, no, we're not. We're not asking these cells that we're putting in to do anything different than they normally would. And the nice thing is, they don't seem to care whether they're in the fetal environment or the adult environment. They follow their developmental program, right? So we're we're not trying to change that. We're taking advantage of it. Um, because to date, it seems that these cells uh, will do what they do during development and develop um, into the right cell types, project to the right parts of the brain, and, and make the right type of connections. Um, so that's all inherently programmed in these cells, uh, and they seem to do it even in the adult to a large extent. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's a, probably um, at least a half dozen labs that show this at this point. So it's very encouraging that, we, you know, and it, it was a bit of a surprise that they would do this in the adult. Um, but, hey, great. You know, that, that'll help us along. Well, as, as a plant biologist, it's no big surprise because we have plant uh, stem cells, not cells in the stem, but, but de-differentiated cell types that you can 
depending upon the hormone gradient they're placed in and the context they're placed in, can differentiate into a number of different tissues because of their totipotency. And so it seems like in something complicated like a brain, maybe there's ways to stumble into this too. But what about things like vascularization? You require uh, some level of angiogenesis before you can support uh, you know, nerve function. And, and is that step one bridge too far? Uh, no. So we have evidence that that can be done as well. And that's one of the reasons that we, we build our fetal-like tissue in, in the adult brain. Uh, and we include in that tissue vascular precursor cells. So within the tissue, those cells quickly form vessels and they fuse with the host vasculature to circulate blood and keep our graft alive. This doesn't happen if you try to build a tissue in a dish and then transplant. So that's one of the advantages of our approach is we rebuild it in a live animal where vascularization occurs uh, fast enough to support survival of the tissue. And what about microglia? I know that you've read in some of your work that there is a attempt to genetically engineer micro, microglia to take on more advanced functions. Can you touch on that a bit? Yeah. So, you know, that that's uh, microglia are very important to uh, rebuilding this fetal-like tissue. They're one of the earliest cell types present in the fetal brain. So it's certainly, uh, you know, when I talk about these multiple precursor cell types, so early microglial precursors are included in that and, and uh, important for the development of the fetal tissue. Uh, so we're including it there. Um, now we have other applications for microglia that you're alluding to here with genetic reprogramming. Um, so that's not replacing tissue to reverse aging, but it's to deliver, you know, um, biologic drugs to the brain under any disease condition uh, that can't otherwise get to the brain. So these biologic drugs don't cross the blood-brain barrier by and large. Uh, and so there's no delivery mechanism for getting them there. So we have this uh, sort of uh, side project where we engineer microglia to produce a biologic of interest. Maybe it's an anti-inflammatory factor. Maybe it's an angi angiogenic factor. Maybe, you know, it could be anything. Uh, but then the microglia, when we put them in, we have a, a way of having them spread throughout the brain and replace existing microglia. Um, and so the brain, you know, has normal amount of microglia, except now the microglia that we put in are secreting um, a, a factor, a therapeutic factor that would otherwise be hard to distribute into the brain tissue. That's uh, really cool. So what is a good example of one of these therapeutic factors that maybe shows promise in a mouse model? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think the more uh, canonical one is a neurotrophic factor. There's, there's several that have been used in preclinical studies. Uh, you know, there's brain-derived neurotrophic factor, glial-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, and those have been shown, at least when you inject locally into the mouse brain that has features of Alzheimer's uh, to, to uh, help curb the disease progression. And people would have wanted to use these in humans, but they're very inefficient, these factors at crossing the blood-brain barrier. And you don't want to go around injecting, you know, doing arrayed injections throughout the whole brain to get them in there because you'll end up doing more damage than doing good. 
So, so we need some way of delivering those uh, factors, and that's what we're uh, working on with that project. That's interesting. But are, are there um, specific viruses? I think about like you know the uh, bacterial or the uh, viral meningitis virus. Um, these do work in the central nervous system, and are there viral vectors that do that kind of work as well? Uh, yeah, but the viruses don't spread. Uh, throughout the brain, like microglia do. Microglia are really uh, impressive. You can do like one little superficial injection and um, they'll just, you know, spread and, and, and cover, you know, the, the whole tissue. Uh, whereas virus, you know, if you inject it, will only go so far. And again, if you inject it systemically, very little of it makes it into the, the brain tissue per se. Um, so, yeah, viruses are a little more limited. And they can be associated, of course, with inflammatory responses. <laughs> I believe there's side effects. Well, I really love these kinds of shot down the field, you know, moonshot projects because, uh, you know, maybe uh, someday this will be a very practical therapeutic that you can go receive to reverse brain deficits. But are there other collateral things that you've learned from this about just the way a brain functions and repairs itself? Yeah, I'm just constantly amazed by, you know, the, the two pillars on which our projects are built on, and that is the plasticity of the adult human brain to, to, to seamlessly move uh, functions over time from one area to another, even something like personality. So uh, talking to a clinician recently who had a patient with a mastocytoma the size of an orange, uh, in the uh, in these two frontal lobes, uh, and um, you know, which if that was sudden damage that occurred there, that individual would have completely changed their personality. But in this case, uh, never lost their personality. But, you know, they were always the same person to everyone that knew them. Once, you know, said they were the same. You know, grandpa's the same. You know, you know has that damage in the, from his brain, of course. Um, you know, that, that's, that's pretty impressive, that level of plasticity, and that's very encouraging for us. But the second thing is just, you know, that these fetal-like cells just seem innately eager and programmed to do, uh, to, to build new tissue for us if we place them in the right organization and ratios. So we're very encouraged. We can get this. A fair amount of further tweaking, but yeah, tweaking nonetheless. I do you realistically think that this is something that you may see in your career? Yeah, I'm hopeful. Uh, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't say it's a guarantee. Uh, it's very hard to predict the pace of progress, right? Uh, you, you must be familiar with that, uh, speaking to scientists in different areas. Sometimes it accelerates much faster than expected, and sometimes, you know, there's hardly any measurable progress for a long time. Uh, so it, it's hard to predict. Uh, I think it's possible. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited by the idea that we can reverse brain aging with this progressive tissue replacement. And if we can reverse brain aging, then, you know, I think the rest of the body, uh, there'll be ways of replacing old parts with new parts, just like you would a, a used car. So... That way we could, you know, 
extend life, uh, enjoyable life and good health for a much longer time. Now, it's, it's really a good note to go out on because I know a lot of folks listen to the podcast because they find a topic that appeals to them, uh, maybe a, a parent with cognitive decline or someone starting to suffer from Alzheimer's or ALS or whatever, and they start to look for information online. And the fact that there's something on the horizon is very comforting to them. And, and maybe it's not tomorrow, but science has a funny way of surprising us with its fits and spurts of progress. And uh, it at least gives people some hope that maybe there's something on the future. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. So thank you very much for spending the time and best wishes going forward. Yeah, thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. And for our listeners, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Do me a favor. Go on Twitter and retweet this. Go on Facebook and share it with some friends. The idea that we may be able to repair the damage that time does to our brains is pretty exciting, even if it seems like it's in an infancy, because science tends to surprise us, and uh, you never know what's going to happen next. Just to know that these things are on the horizon can bring a lot of hope to a lot of people with uh, significant problems. So thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.